Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. And oh, I suppose, as I say too often on the journey home, it's a great privilege I have to be able to do this program with the Coming Home Network from our Coming Home Network studios. And I'm joined today by a friend and co-worker, uh, Kenneth Hensley, who I jokingly called his royal isness on the left coast, but he's really the pastoral care coordinator for Coming Home Network. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing great, Marcus. It's good to be here with you. It's good. Separated as we are across the world. Separated uh, brethren. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, just for those of you that, well, first of all, uh, some, we've got a lot of deep in history, deep in scripture programs on the Coming Home Network website, uh, chnetwork.org. You can check out all those programs. But we haven't done one in a while, and so we've been really anxious to start them up again, because they're a lot of fun, Ken. I mean, I really believe, I enjoy these programs, uh, mm -hmm. very much so. And uh, what we try and examine in this program, we're not trying to be scholars here, but we're trying to examine Scripture, the teaching of the Church, tradition, and we're trying to recognize, um, you know, how do you really understand the, the meaning of Scripture? Uh, and we look at it, Ken, uh, maybe you could start a little bit, because you're coming at it, from a, with a background, right? Yes. Yes, I'm coming at it from a, well, I was a Protestant pastor. I mean, I was a, I was a pastor, I was ordained into a Baptist denomination, the American Baptist Churches of the Pacific Southwest. But you can probably think, if you want to envision it, um, non-denominational evangelical kind of environment, yeah. Okay. Where I was um, graduated from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, and I was a pastor for about 11 years before entering the Catholic Church 21 years ago, and I still feel like a convert. <laughs> yeah, I can. Then, I, boy, then I can I'm thinking about the fact that it's, it's been 21 years, and yet I cannot even talk about the faith still without making a case for it all the time, you know? I'm an apologist by nature now. Yeah, I understand. And uh, I, I think the thing I've mostly learned over my 25 years, I guess, six years of being a Catholic is uh, how, how little I know uh, and how little I knew before. But... All right, Ken. Now, I've invited you to join me on this program. What scripture, what's on your heart? What do you want to talk about today? Okay, well, what I wanted to talk about is uh, an issue that really was one of the key issues in my own conversion to the Catholic faith, and that is the issue of unity and what the New Testament is envisioning in the way of Christ Church being unified, being one church. That's what I'd like to talk about. I've got a few passages in mind. You want me just to shoot off? Well, yeah. Something? And for the audience, obviously, this is a humongous topic and an important yeah. <laughs> topic that's been debated yeah. for 2,000 yeah. years in different ways. So we've only got certain length of time. But, but yeah, tack it from the angle that's, that connects with your journey, Ken. Okay. Well, as a Protestant for over 20 years, I was so used to the idea that Christ Church was divided into many, many sects and denominations and whatnot. I was so used to the idea that these existed in a fragmented state, the Church, um, contradicting one another on issues of doctrine, issues of morality and whatnot. I was so used to it that it didn't even bother me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't think about it. Because I, I guess the logic, if someone had pinned me against a wall, then I would have said, well, the bottom line is our only authority is sacred scripture, and we simply don't agree on what it teaches. Um, 
regardless of whether we're smart or whether we pray hard or whatever we do, we don't agree. And so we have to exist in this fragmented state, and there's really nothing we can do about it. And, I, and so, I, if I could just add yeah, in there, you know, yeah. same for me, I guess from my Lutheran Calvinist background, I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm a sinful person covered with the righteousness of Christ. It ain't my righteousness. So when I look at why we're divided all over the place, what's our sin? And the reason there's so many churches is because, Ken, you're a different kind of guy than I am. You're the one that wants people to be lifting their hands and jumping backflips in their worship. And, and I'm more of a pensive, quiet, in the corner, by myself guy. So that's why we need different churches. And we have different gifts. So in other words, we always had some kind of explanation to come up to describe the reality that was around us. Right, right, right. Yeah, or, or, or throw this one in. The Bible is actually very clear, and if we just study harder, yeah. we'll all agree, yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, okay, one passage that struck me along the way was the prayer of our Lord in John chapter 17, in particular where he says, I do not pray for these only, referring to his disciples, those who are in the upper room with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. I and them, thou and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And I remember the day or the time when it began to strike me. Here's our Lord in the upper room. It's on the very night of his arrest. These are some of the last recorded words uh, of our Lord, period. And what does he have on his mind? He has on his mind the oneness and the unity of his church. And then he makes that extraordinary, he, he, he prays for that unity, and then he makes that extraordinary statement so that the world may know that you have sent me. And yeah. the realization coming over me, how can the world know that Christianity is true when they're able to say, well, okay, you want me to be a Christian, which one? You know, I got the Baptists calling me, I've got the Presbyterians, I've got Catholics, I got work, I, you know, all you guys, you, you disagree with each other. You teach contradictory doctrines. Which one should I? Uh, which one should I be joining? You know, I remember this passage too, Ken, and it wasn't one that in the ten years that I was an ordained pastor, I don't remember preaching on this passage once. And I think part of it was, how could I understand even for a moment what Jesus was talking about when I don't even understand how it is that He and the Father are one? You know, intellectually, I right, right, I, right. I accept the Trinity, but right. I don't understand that. You know, through my sinfulness, my ignorance, my rebellion. If I don't understand that, it's certainly understandable why I don't, why we can't be together. So basically, I didn't go there. I just said, in heaven, maybe. And so I went yeah. on with my work. Yeah, and if I thought about it, I probably would have just said, well, he just means spiritual oneness. He just means, may the church be one in heart. May they love one another. But Like that song we sang it, around the, the, the fire, yeah. you know, the campfires. We are one in the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, when I thought about it more, though, it, it, it just seems pretty obvious that Jesus would not want his church broken, fragmented into contradic- uh, contradictory um, modes, you know, and yeah. uh, ex- expressions. It doesn't make any sense to think that. I mean, if you just think about the Old Covenant Israel, you know, God established something that was that was tangible, that was real, and it had one it had one doctrinal system. You didn't have like 75 Israels out there in the desert all trying to do it right and all contradicting one another. It, 
it made sense to me that he wouldn't want that. Okay, yeah. but the passage that really hit me strongly a little bit later was Ephesians chapter 4. Um, if, if John 17 lets us know that, that our Lord would want a church that was unified, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll, I'll read it in just a second, but Ephesians fact, chapter 4 um, let me know that the kind of unity that our Lord is praying for would, is simply impossible when each Christian is free to study the Bible and essentially figure out for themselves what they think it's teaching. This is the passage where Paul's talking about unity. It's the passage where he says there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord, and all that. And within the context of discussing unity, he talks about how our Lord ascended into heaven and gave gifts to his church. And he says, beginning in verse 11, his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Okay, why did he give pastors and teachers to his church? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, okay, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. And let me, let me just throw out the main point that came to me, and then I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about it. The main thought that came to me is what Paul is saying here is that Jesus gave pastors and teachers to his church specifically in order to build the children of God up in unity, and the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, so that they would not be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine thrown here, thrown there, left and right, okay? The thing that hit me was this. When I read this, it started to become clear that what Paul is envisioning here is simply not possible unless all these pastors and teachers are bound to some common authoritative doctrine. If, they're, if they are bound to an authoritative doctrinal system, then whether they're teaching in Bangladesh or in, you know, in Alberta, Canada, or down in Florida or wherever, they're going to be building up the children of God in the unity of the faith. But if each pastor and each teacher is free to go into his office and open his Bible and study it and decide for himself, oh, I think the Baptists are right, or no, 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 I think the Nazarenes are right, or the Presbyterians or the Lutherans, or on and on, then the pastors and teachers, rather than being forces that are building the children of God up in unity, become the very forces blowing the children of God back and forth by every wind of doctrine. Whether they have the best of motives or, or they have, uh, you know, sometimes bad motives. And I just looked out at the Protestant world and realized in the Protestant world, pastors and teachers function as forces blowing the children of God back and forth. The children of God don't know, should I join this church? Should I join that one? Oh, this guy's saying I should come here. That guy's, you follow what I'm saying. I saw that Protestantism and sola scriptura, if you will, and the right of private judgment leads to the leads necessarily to the opposite of what Paul's envisioning here. You know, an example came to my mind as you were talking, Ken. Very recently, in the Office of Readings of the Liturgy of the Hours, the second reading was from a letter written by Tertullian, who was one of the first of the Latin writers of the early church. And in this particular writing, he's dealing with the question, 
of how do you know if something's true? Because he was recognizing that there were the apostles and they had planted churches that had planted churches and they had planted churches and now they're all around. How do you know which is the true doctrine? Mm -hmm. And his answer was, because you can trace it through the apostolic churches to the apostles. So in other words, the description (coughs) is, when you look at the passages you talked about, from the Father to the Son, today's reading from John is that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so you've got it from the Father to the Son to the apostles to their disciples to the and the churches. So you have that trajectory, which is what you're talking about. And as long as Tertullian was saying this, as long as you hold to that apostolic deposit of faith, then you're you're protected from every wind of doctrine, every wise guy cunning over there, or somebody who's even oblivious to within himself. Now, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is Tertullian went off the ranch. Yes, yes. What happened to Tertullian? Well, he blew it in the sense that he didn't like what was happening in the church. He thought it should be different. He became oblivious to his own stuff going on inside of him. And so pretty soon he thought he knew it better than the hierarchy. And so he went after a group that he thought they are the ones that have the true spirit. They are the ones that have... So Tertullian, to this day, is recognized outside the uh, the ranch, and sadly because he abandoned the foundation, which he recognized himself, which is exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, the very principle that, that he enunciated. And, okay, since we're, since we're quoting the early church fathers, or we're quoting the fathers now, let me throw one more in. Because it was it was one thing for me as a Protestant to begin to recognize that that Christ was praying for a united church. Paul says God gave pastors and teachers to the church specifically to build the church up in unity. And then I looked around and I saw that within Protestantism, because of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment, the right of each pastor and teacher to study and decide for himself what the correct Christian theology should be, Pastors and teachers were functioning as this, as the opposite force, blowing people around. It was one thing for me to come to see the sola scriptura kind of leads to this division and fragmentation. It was another thing for me to realize that 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 the heretics of the early church, many of them majored in sola, sola scriptura. Let me give you an illustration. This passage, <laughs> this very fa- famous passage from Saint Vincent of Lorraine, uh, writing in his Commonitorium in the fifth century. When I read this, you know, my eyes kind of popped out, you know, listen to this. If one should ask one of the heretics who gives this advice, okay, if one should ask one of the heretics who gives this advice, if you, if you were to ask a heretic, how do you prove what you're saying? If you were to ask a heretic, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? He has a ready answer, for it is written that's his answer. <laughs> and forthwith, he will produce a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, from the Psalms, from the apostles, from the prophets, by means of which, interpreted in a new and on a new and wrong principle, interpreted in a new way, the unhappy soul may be precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to Scripture? They do indeed, and with a vengeance 
For you may see them scamper through every single book of Holy Scripture, whether among their own people or among strangers in private or in public. And speaking of, I think of Dr. Seuss when I read this passage, you know, whether on a tree, whether on a bus or whether, okay, in public and writing at convivial meetings or in the streets, hardly ever do they bring forward anything of their own, which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. You will see an infinite heap of instances, hardly a single page, which does not bristle with plausible quotations from the Old and New Testaments. And, you know, just just to realize, St. Vincent is living in a real-world situation, and he's able to describe the heretics that are around at that time as exactly the people who have mastered their Bibles and know how to flip around and read you a million passages that support their new idea. To support an idea that cannot be traced backward, as you just said, quoting Tertullian, back to the... To the to the apostles through the apostolic succession. What was that translate? You had a little phrase there that that Varen said um, about it is written or something that. What was that? Said that if you if you ask a heretic on what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church, he has a ready answer. It is written. Okay, you That's know the answer. modern translation of that is the Bible says. <laughs> yeah, the Bible well, yeah. says, and you know. Um, Yes, I remember when I was in seminary and taking theology myself. I remember this issue came up: How do you determine which of all these opinions there are? You know, Trinity, Unitarianism, uh, the divinity of Christ. No, he's he's he was a human being that was adopted by God. That's the Arian view. All right. these different positions. Uh, you know, what about can a man and a woman be ordained? All these other issues. And my theology professor said he was quoting that same author. And he used the phrase, well, it's the quasi-unanimous decision of Christians throughout the ages in all cultures. That's Mm -hmm. how we decide what's true. In other words, the ultimate democratic uh, polling, uh, you know, test to see how the Holy Spirit is speaking through the people in general. The kind of the bell curve, and mm-hmm, that's where mm-hmm. we end up. And the truth is, if anyone really studies the theological battles, the doctrinal battles in the early church, you recognize right away that that doesn't work. Because during those hundred and so years of the Arian controversy, the bell curve, the top of that bell curve, wasn't orthodoxy. It was Arianism. Right, and it right. Was, and it was only because of Athanasius and others with him that we were drawn back to the truth of the apostolic message. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's totally true. And Athanasius, I mean, wasn't he exiled like five times? Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, it looked as though the empire was going Arian. That's how it looked. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of those. How many of us would have the, the, the strength Mm-hmm. To stand up to all that. And what struck me, uh, Ken, also, and I'd love to have your thought on this, that passage you wrote, you read, I want to make sure that it, that we aren't misunderstood in our, in our discussion. It's not like we're taking a hard line on, you know, we Catholics are perfect, we got it all right, everybody outside are a bunch of heretics, schismatics, and they're a bunch of dummies. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing we're talking about at all, because when you look at that passage, and it says, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, prophets, evangelists, mm-hmm. 
pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's a process there that Mm -hmm. recognizing that sin is always lurking, the devil's always lurking on our shoulder. But on top of that, when he gives a gift to some man to be the apostle, that man also had the complete freedom to respond. In other words, God called Peter mm-hmm. to be an apostle, but Peter could have said, nah, I like fishing. All the, the, there was that freedom, the mystery mm-hmm. of that freedom, mm-hmm. but, it's, but there's more there. There's a part of that mystery and that relationship between the sovereign grace of God that awakened you and me to follow Jesus Christ and the freedom of our will, but there's a mystery there that Scripture calls election. Now, I'm not going to go there because it's been debated forever, but my point is that unity is the mystery of the gift of God, and it's real, and it continues, but there's our side of it. Yes, yes. There's our response to it, and that's Mm -hmm. why he says that the church has this structure in it. Why? So we can work together in obedience to grace so that we can attain Mm -hmm. the unity that actually already exists in the body of Christ, mm-hmm. but yet, at the same time, it's an already not yet thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's true, but it's something we have to work out every single day. Yeah, and I'm not, uh, you know, as I bring these passages, I guess one thing I'd like to throw in, too, is that as I bring these passages forward, I don't present them as proofs somehow by themselves, as proofs of the Catholic system. I'm I, I'm telling my story in a sense, and I'm I'm just saying that when I looked at these passages, it became clearer and clearer to me that the that the idea that Marcus Grodi and Ken Hensley and all the other pastors and teachers in the world should sit down and open their Bibles and study the Bibles and decide for themselves what the theology of the Christian faith is, was not a, was not a plausible system. There had to be some authority on earth, some structure of authority on earth, or you could never have what Jesus is praying for and what Paul is commanding in other passage. You simply couldn't have it. And the thing is, who was applying for the job? Yeah. I mean, who, who else? There, there's no one even applying for the job from the early centuries of the church, but the Catholic Church. Yeah, you know, and Oh, boy. And I know it's not true of you, because you're his royal isness on the left coast, but I know that I uh, am a am a weak being and uh, very flawed. Uh, when when Paul says, "Hey, I haven't attained this yet, but forgetting what lies yeah. behind, I press onward." I mean, that yeah. is so absolutely true. And when I recognize there at the end of verse fourteen, when it says that we may not be, we no longer be like children. Hey, I'm sixty six years old, and sometimes I think I'm I'm still twelve. You know, inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. Every day I realize that there are ways in which I thought I'd been led by the Spirit and I was wrong, or I thought yeah. my great intelligence, my cunning had it all figured out and I was wrong, or that I was blind to the motives within me that were really self-centered. I thought I was being loving. Lord Jesus, I can't come up with my own idea for the church. Thank you that you've given us the church, that by your Holy Spirit and grace, Amen. we've been by mercy invited to be a part of. Yes, yes, yeah. 
I don't know what to add here. I know we're running out of time, and um, I'm looking at my clock here. And you know, I, I did want to ask you when, when you call me Royal Isness, you know, it does really depend on what what you what isness means, what, what isness is, doesn't it? Um, but you, you know, the fact that there was one church from the earliest times that was actually applying for the job of what is needed, that is some kind of st- a structure of authority on earth, then you add in, and I know there's no time to substantiate these things, but you add in all the passages about Peter in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16 is an important one, obviously. You add in, I, I add in the things that Paul said to Timothy as he was nearing the end of his life. The fact that he didn't say to Timothy, you know, Timothy, quickly get all the letters I've written and get down to Kinko's and start making copies as fast as you can. But instead, he said to Timothy, the things you have heard me teach, heard me teach in the presence of many witnesses, guard these by the Holy Spirit, pass them on. What I see in the New Testament is not, I do not see the apostles preparing the church for a life of Bible-only Christianity or a life of sola scriptura. I see them preparing the church for a life in which they believe the substance of their doctrine will be will be preserved by the Holy Spirit through the apostolic succession within the church. And this is what Tertullian spoke about. This is what all the other fathers, Irenaeus, you can find quotations from all of them that are saying essentially the same thing, that if you want to know the true faith, just like a rich man deposits his money in the bank, Irenaeus said, so that he can come later and take it out, you can go to the church and you can receive from the church the true doctrine which the apostles have deposited within her. They don't say the apostles deposited it within the Bible, go study it and figure it out. The yeah. apostles deposited it within the church. Anyway, that's it. Well, I, I agree with you, and that's why we even have, I won't mention a name, but a, 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 a New Testament scholar who at one time was fundamentalist, but now is a, a, a raving atheist and one of the most published modern atheists who has ideas of the early church that basically say that the intent of God was all these independent little communities. And the only way is that when you begin from an assumption that there is no church, you're free to, to let your imagination run wild. And that's why we recognize that not only did Christ establish one church, but that that's the continuity of the people from God that goes all the way back to Abraham. There's always been one chosen people, always. Whenever there was a division, look in the Old Testament, look what happened. Ken, thank you, my friend, for joining us on Deep in Scripture. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome. I'll have you back again soon. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. Uh, Please go to the website and find out more, but we'll look forward to being with you again. God bless you. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey.